Comstay Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. We've got a, a very interesting podcast this week. We're going to take a, a good look at a grilling that NBN CEO Stephen Rue received in Senate Estimates from Labor earlier this week about its decision not to use GFAST in its fibre to the curb network as promised for five years and instead go to a direct fibre upgrade. We'll also be catching up with Rowan Pearce to have a look at the week that was later on in the show. But first up, our chief editor, Simon Ducks. How are you, Simon? Very well, thanks, Graham. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Um, happy, happy to uh, go, go into my first long lunch this afternoon after not having done one for many, many months. Anyway, um, the big story this week, uh, which, which you led with on the 26th of October, was Telstra's uh, $2 billion deal to buy Digicel Pacific, mostly funded by the Australian government. But this gets Telstra into about half of the South Pacific. Tell us all about it. Yes, it's uh, uh, quite a deal. It was one of those ones uh, that had months and months of market and media speculation and uh, uh, a lot of different parties uh, were potentially involved. uh, And in the end... Um, uh, Telstra emerged after initially uh, engaging with the government to uh, talk about some of the technical detail uh, which they brought in. Uh, but uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, we've now got uh, Telstra buying Dig- Digicel Pacific, um, 72% funded by the Australian government. And uh, it's uh, quite a step on that side. I'll run through the mechanics a little bit. Essentially, Telstra is going to own 100% of the new entity as part of the deal, which it expects to uh, complete within six months. And the government's going to provide US $1.33 billion Export Finance Australia package, and that will comprise $720 million US in 10-year competitively priced debt, and that will be consolidated onto Telstra's uh, balance sheet. And 610 million US dollars of government equity, which we consolidated into total equity as non-controlling in, uh, interest. So Telstra will add a further US 270 million as part of the deal, and there's also a US 250 million uh, earnout clause. Now, you know, when you turn around and look at uh, the deal, you've got to say who are the big winners here, and uh, naturally, uh, the immediate uh, big uh, uh, winner is uh, the Republic of Ireland's richest man, uh, Dennis O'Brien, the founder. <laughs> of uh, 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 Digicel Pacific uh, because, uh, as you pointed out in your column, uh, he's uh, managed to uh, reduce some of the debt of his overall Digicel unit and still managed to hold on to 80% of his uh, uh, business as well, uh, mainly in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, So uh, the other uh, winner, when you look at this, uh, is... uh, Telstra shareholders because of the fact that this is pretty much a deal that's been underwritten by uh, the Australian government. So as far as uh, Chief Executive Officer Andy Penn is concerned, uh, he got his whole wish list uh, regarding financial and strategic risk management support uh, from the government. And uh, all of the numbers had exceeded Telstra's M&A criteria. So uh, you can argue that Telstra is effectively guaranteed a return on its equity in half a decade and uh, looks set to tap into long-term earnings stream. So the thing about that, if you look a little bit further, though, there are some key reputational risks that we uh, highlighted. They weren't actually brought... Uh, into uh, some of the wider media uh, reporting in this uh, where there was a lot of uh, potential backslapping, I would suggest. 
Um, but uh, what has happened is that, of course, they've bought networks across the South Pacific. Uh, the majority of uh, the company is actually uh, New Guinea-based in terms of revenue and size. Um, but uh, obviously, uh, we're also talking about networks in Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, Tonga, and Nauru. And uh, with the exception of Nauru, uh, the markets are all duopolies, and Digicellus has between 40% to 90% market share in each one. But uh, because of the acquisition, um, Telstra has immediately got a uh, problem for itself because for the first time in its history, it's now a network procurement customer of uh, China's vendors Huawei and ZTE. Now, uh, you know, we saw uh, all of the uh, 5G moves uh, regarding uh, the security and removing uh, those particular companies from uh, the Australian market on 5G. And uh, if you look uh, uh, further, obviously, um, both Optus and TPG stripped out all of their Huawei 4G kit because, of course, these things uh, pretty much do run hand in hand. So, uh, you know, this is going to be a, uh, a problem for Telstra going forward. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, I asked uh, Andy uh, about what he thought of that. And essentially, it, it, it felt a little bit like it was one of those things where they were kicking the can down the road a little bit, that they're going to have some longer term engagement on how uh, they're going to actually resolve uh, uh, that uh, network going forward as they look at uh, building out potentially uh, in all of these markets. Now, when we look at what the shareholders are getting, uh, Digicel Pacific uh, is actually um, a, a pretty successful company with um, uh, 2.5 million subscribers and generated 431 billion US in service revenue and uh, particularly uh, 233 million US in uh, EBITDA in FY21, and uh, the EBITDA margin is uh, 54%, which, uh, you know, most telcos would be very, very happy with. Well, it's higher than what Telstra gets in Australia, that's for sure. Very much so. And, uh, of course, uh, that leads its own uh, uh, potential, another reputational risk, uh, and that is the fact that um, uh, in New Guinea, uh, Digicel's had a lot of run-ins with the regulator, NICTA, uh, around um, pricing and uh, how it's been operating in the country uh, because it is essentially a monopoly. Uh, you know, there's a few uh, state-run comp- uh, competitors that are just uh, haven't got their act together, uh, essentially. So for all intents and purposes, uh, a monopoly in New Guinea. And uh, uh, some researchers did some uh, view into the coral see cable system going into New Guinea and notice that the fact for the last couple of years, even though that's been in there, there haven't been any price decreases. And uh, one of the key things that Digicel has been picked up on uh, is uh, the way they're doing microfinancing uh, for people as well. So you're running at ARP, who's of $11 monthly US uh, in uh, uh, for Digicel Pacific, um, but that could become a problem for Telstra going forward because uh, one can imagine that the New Guinea uh, regulator is going to be watching that one uh, pretty closely just because of the fact that they want to see some movement on price. Yeah, and it's an interesting point there because if you look at the way this deal is predicated, there's a, a lot of guarantees for people um, about earnings. You know, Telstra is guaranteed a return you know, in the first uh, half a decade you know, to pay yep. back its expenditure. Um, there, there's a sizable earnout promise for Dennis O'Brien. Um, there, there's quite a lot of uh, debt to the Export Finance Australia that has to be repaid over 10 years, $72 million a year, nominally, US. 
Um, there's a lot of calls on those earnings, and certainly it would seem not a lot of leeway for price reductions in those markets. <laughs> Very much so, because you've got a complete business model that's predicated on the on the current returns. Yes. Now, you, you raised a couple of very interesting questions there, Simon. And, and as, as you mentioned, I, I, I talked about some of this in a column um, earlier this week. Um, the, the vendor one with suppliers is one that's very interesting to me. And, and there's a couple, a couple of issues here. There's obviously the issue you know, about what the US State Department terms clean networks. You know, and, and, and Telstra's on the list of, of, yes. of, of support. Of, telcos that don't use Huawei as a supplier, but from uh, the minute this deal was closed, that can no longer be said to be the case. But I, 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 see, I see some other issues here. What, one is that the Pacific Islands are serviced by Huawei out of Australia, and of course they've been banned from supplying networks here, so that's gutted straight into their capabilities and their, their expertise and their resources in this part of the world. They just simply don't have the revenue coming out of Australia to back it up. So I, I, can, I can see an issue no matter what happens with getting um, supplier support of any type in these nations going forward. It's going to be very hard to convince Ericsson and Nokia to, to give some of these markets a lot of priority because they've got such bad scale economies. And if the long-term intention is to get rid of Huawei and CTE, well, what incentives do they have to be great suppliers in the interim in, in, in terms of upkeep of, of the networks? And, and you know, I, I think some of these issues may not have been fully contemplated very much so. And uh, it, it was interesting because uh, one of the things Andy Penn said uh, was uh, that medium to long-term capex to sales is expected to stay at around 15%. Uh, and uh, even including that, free ca- cash flow is still running at 40% of sales. And because of that, that did suggest that there was no immediate plans to do anything about it Um uh, so uh, I think that's an issue. And one of the other things that you brought up in uh, your column I, I thought was quite fascinating was this idea that um, uh, you may end up with um, people or subscribers in Australia that are still waiting uh, to get certain um, broadband or so on uh, in terms of fixes or whatever, uh, feeling that they might be getting prioritised as uh, Telstra is investing um, uh, for the uh, citizens of Port Moresby, for example. Yeah, we talked about this in a podcast a few weeks ago, and this is specifically the Sydney MP, Julian Lisa, who's a government backbencher, who has a private member's bill, which uh, proposes all sorts of obligations on telcos to improve their quality of service, particularly in um, the bush and also in so-called peri-urban areas on urban fringes. And um, they're not going to be too impressed by this, I would have thought. Two billion Australian dollars put in the hands of an Irish billionaire um, and and nominally considerably smaller amounts pledged for their wish list. It's pretty obvious that they're not going to be too keen on this. Um, Very much yeah, the, the the other the other issue I I can see, which no, I was a little surprised that no analyst asked about this on the Q and A last week. But you know, we we know that, that Telstra has a big exposure in China, and what Telstra has effectively just done, and it actually said this in its own words, we now have a very tight relationship with the Australian government, and you know this is on a national security level. So Telstra operates all through China. I think it's got nearly forty pops or so in that country. It carries a lot of traffic in and out. If I was China, I'd, I'd be well. Firstly, smarting at the fact that the US banned China Telecom just this week, took away its licenses. But I, I'd be looking at Telstra and thinking, "Hmm, is this the sort of telco that I necessarily want to have in my market when they're lockstep with the Australian government in a geopolitical 
strategic blocking move against us. And, and that what hasn't been contemplated. And there could be some blowback for Telstra in China. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really great point uh, because in addition to the POPs, you know, they're, they're also running a number of data centers uh, uh, in China as well. And obviously they've got their extensive undersea cable network uh, throughout the region as well. So it does make you start wondering, uh, although short term there are a lot of smiles, um, if there is a massive uh, backlash provoked by China, does uh, does this um, acquisition become a pyrrhic victory? Yeah, exactly. So, so this is the thing. It, it, it is a great deal on paper for Telstra. It, it's always a great deal when someone else pays for three quarters of your asset. <laughs> um, um, and you know, and and we said that the government's paying for seventy two percent of it. Well, you know, Telstra is not paying for the other twenty eight percent. It's paying maybe a, a half that, and of course. The, the remainder is to come out of future earnings. Um, yes. um, so, so, so Telstra's share of the bill was even less than it might seem. Um, it, it is a great deal on paper, but it does surprise me that some of these other issues don't appear to have been contemplated. And, and my, my feedback was that some of the issues we've raised in comms day did, did take people um, involved in the deal a little bit by surprise. Judging by some of the feedback yeah. we got, which which um which did surprise me. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely, I bet as you pointed out in your uh, column, uh, it was uh, a bit of a um, insight. Uh, the fact that the entire deal and all of the spokespeople were all DFAT, uh, rather than uh, the Department of Comms having anything to do with this. Yeah, I did. I did think that was interesting. I did think I did think that was very interesting. And um, may, maybe I'm reading too much into that. But um, ordinarily, I would have thought there'd be some Department of Comms people all over this. Um, just, just a final point, Simon. We, as you know, we were following Senate estimates very closely this week, and um, this whole deal got less than fifteen minutes consideration in in a whole day of hearings with foreign affairs and, and trade people, um, and it got fifteen minutes late at night. And uh, no detail was elicited beyond what was already in a press release. So, so it appears like there um, might not be a lot of parliamentary scrutiny on this one either. That is fascinating, given uh, the amount of time that was uh, spent on uh, the Australian High Commission building in London. <laughs> Indeed. Well, on that note, um, thank you very much for joining us today, Simon. Thanks again, Graham. Well, moving on, Federal Labor has used Senate estimates to quiz NBNCO over whether it misled Communications Minister Paul Fletcher about the upgrade path of its 1.5 million premises fibre to the curb network. Labor Senator Louise Pratt questioned NBNCO CEO Stephen Rue on why the network operator abandoned its original plans dating back to 2016 and restated as recently as September 2020 to use a simple GFAST fit-out to upgrade its fibre-to-the-curb network to gigabit capacity. That plan was reaffirmed in September last year when Fletcher announced that NBNCO would spend just $100 million to give the 1.5 million FTC premises access to gigabit speeds through enablement of GFAST capability by 2023. But in May this year, Comstay revealed that NBNCO had instead decided to offer a direct fibre upgrade from the distribution hub to FTTC customers who wanted higher speeds instead of upgrading the entire network to GFAST. 
Let's hear the exchange between Senator Louise Pratt and NBN CEO Stephen Rue in Senate Estimates this week. Did you um, mislead Minister Fletcher when he told the National Press Club that fibre to the curb would be used to deliver gigabit speeds? Um, We never mislead anybody, Senator. The Minister said NBN will commit $100 to speed uplift for the 1.5 million homes served. This will give them access to gigabit speeds through the enablement of GFAST capability by 2023. Was that statement accurate and based on advice for from NBN Co? I think at, at the time, Senator, we were considering a multiple ways in which we could um, upgrade the fibre to the curb network, which gives currently 100 megabit per second speed to, to enable it to give up to one gigabit speed. And, and that could be done in either using GFAST or it can be done with um, replacing the fibre to, uh, to the premise. We, we concluded recently that um, it would be more economical over the long term for us to um, implement fibre to the premise. Um, certainly GFAST could be used um, across upper line in fibre to the curb, but we have chosen to use uh, fibre to the uh, fibre to the premise. Okay, so to be clear, uh, MBN Co is saying. Sorry, that does not mean we've abandoned GFAST. So, Sandra, there may be other uses of GFAST in more network. NBN Co is now saying that FTTP is more expensive in the near term, but will achieve a return over the medium term. Yeah, we believe we believe that by by using fibre to the by using basically a fibre lead-in centre, that over the longer term that gives a better return on investment for the for the upgrade for fibre to the uh, curb for those people who wish to have speeds greater than 100 megabits per second. Okay, so does that mean that remediation and operation costs for copper exceed the cost of building a fibre lead-in? It means it means the development of um, of GFAST across a network. It means issues of home wiring. It means issues of remediation of copper. It means in terms of take up rates. All those things we have concluded, um, and, and ultimately send potentially the upgrade eventually of some of the copper wire over time. Okay, we have so you changed that. your mind. Um, in no, we 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 we. we I'm not sure we changed our mind, but we did more. We always plan to use a combination of fibre lead-ins and GFAST, but we yeah, have subsequently concluded that we, we wish to use fibre lead-ins. Labor had a, a promise of fibre to the premises a long time ago, probably based on exactly the kinds of issues that you're now disclosing. Now, this type of exchange does annoy me greatly. The cost of the GFAST upgrade was put at $100 million to upgrade 1.5 million premises. Now, what we do know is that for the GPON overlay of the fibre to the node network, the the price or the cost of fibre lead-ins is $750 a pop. Now, if that was to be duplicated, the fibre to the curb network, you're looking at a cool $1.125 billion dollars to fibre up that entire network. Now, let's say because the, the copper loops to be replaced are shorter for fibre to the curb, it's half that. That's still over $500 million. And it, 
you've, you've got to come up with some pretty amazing figuring to get to a point where you're getting better than $100 million for 1.5 million premises being upgraded. And I'm sorry about the co- attributing that to the cost of copper remediation just doesn't wash with me. I would really like to see some more detailed explanation on this one. Well, moving on, it's time to look at the week that was with Comms Day Executive Editor Rowan Pierce. Hello, Rowan. Hey, Graham. You had um, a couple of interesting stories this week. Let's let's take a look at them. First up was uh, the Australian Communications and Media Authority being challenged on its progress with combating coarse boofing robocalls. And apparently after the US and the UK have launched much more ambitious measures to tackle these issues. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so obviously this week it was Senate estimates, which is always um, always good fun. Involves <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of coffee. But so so the the ACMA appeared and were actually kind of um in, interrogated somewhat about the kind of like how they're dealing with robocalls and call speaking and those kind of issues. And I guess like you said, the context really is that the um in, in the US the FCC has been expanding its anti spoofing rules um beginning kind of last year when they mandated that our voice service providers implement stir, shake, and caller ID authentication. Um, so they've gone they've gone quite hard on the issue, and you can see the same in Canada, and then I guess like just this week we also saw in the UK um, Ofcom announcing that major telcos had also agreed to take action on number spoofing, um, particularly targeted at like overseas calls. So they didn't, um, they didn't go into a lot of details exactly what they're doing there. Um, I guess... So ACMA appeared before estimates and I'm really kind of questioned like why aren't they why aren't they doing something similar like mandating I guess the rollout of stir shaken in Australia and they were kind of like well the issue is that we still have legacy networks here and like stir shaken deals very much with like kind of VoIP IP based calling um, but they did say they had a kind of strong watching brief and it's kind of like still an option out there I think one interesting thing is obviously the UK is not a million miles away in which that you know you have open reach still running a kind of tr- traditional telephone network um, until at least uh, late 2025 so there are some kind of analogies there I guess so the, the other bit of context I'd add was that um, this week the government said that around like 214 million um, scam calls have actually been blocked um, in Australia since the ACMA registered the industry code that was developed by Communications Alliance, which really is kind of, um, you know, I, I know obviously people are still getting pestered by some of these calls, but it's a pretty phenomenal result, really. Having said that, I got one the other day. <laughs> oh, aren't you lucky? <laughs> okay, and uh, on, on a related note, um, well, not not that related, I guess, but it's still sort of generally on issues of network security and stability. Um, the Department of Home Affairs sneaked out its annual report on the telco sector security reforms as an appendix in its annual report, um, <laughs> and, and, and they they um, show that they're, they're pretty concerned about. Some of the trends in, in the way modern networks are deployed, th- things like the use of managed service providers, or network function virtualization, 5G cloud and so on, they've got some issues with this. Yeah, so, so like you said, it's, it's I think it's Appendix J in the um, the, the Home Affairs Annual Appendix Report. Appendix J is not even in the top five. <laughs> <laughs> if, if anyone if anyone wants to buy, I did I did have I did have someone um drop me a line saying, uh, do you know do you know where I could get a copy? Because it's not it wasn't. I mean, it might have changed now, but it wasn't on their actual page, which lists 
these are the TSSR annual reports. So yeah, it's only the um, I think it's only the third report since the TSSR was introduced, um, and it, it feels like there's kind of pretty consistent themes coming through for the most part in terms of what Home Affairs is worried about. And um, one is this, like you said, the kind of dependence on like managed service providers to oversee large parts of telco networks and they're still concerned about the kind of level of supervision and oversight um, even if you know e- e- even if you're, you're not assuming you're kind of like nefarious actors infiltrated at MSP it's that thing of like well you you end up with a very complicated supply chain that can be hard to kind of get oversight of um, another issue was yes the issue of NFE and automated network orchestration again which have previously been raised and again involve can involve quite complicated supply chains which means you know more vectors for um, attacks and stuff but so, something that was new this um, this year was the the department said have been having discussions with telcos around 5G cloud orchestration and really dealing with this change in networks where you have a kind of a lot more complex stuff going on outside of the network's core um, obviously, this it's not a million miles away from some of the issues that the government raised when they uh, implemented the Huawei um, ban. So it sounds like that's been one kind of issue that Home Affairs has been engaging with um, telcos about. Um, I, I guess the other issue that they raised, which I believe they raised in previous years too, is there is some kind of ambiguity about what really, you know, what's the threshold for a change in a network or a service that requires a telco to notify the department. So the department said that in some cases that had informal briefings about changes that were kind of more significant from their point of view than telcos thought they they were. Yeah, so, so I, I, I guess the interesting thing there, and, 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 and that ties in with what we were talking about earlier with Simon, with some of the issues around um, Pacific networks and, and trying to keep China out of operational control of those networks, it's that we're still writing the book on on network security, and it's still causing a lot of policy headaches and generating a lot of bills. Yeah, I, I mentioned like I think like regulatory and compliance stuff is just getting so much more complicated. I guess um, as networks get more complicated, really. <laughs> yeah, indeed, that's the case. Okay, well, look, thank you so much again, Rowan. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Take it easy. That's it for Comms Day Live this week. We'll see you next time.